Welcome to the BNP Realm Podcast. This is your host, Brian. Thank you again for joining me. Today, P is for postponing boring meetings, parks, and fish, and a potpourri of goodness, because I'm not sure what I'm going to talk about, but all I know is I have an extra 30, eh, more than 30 minutes, 40 minutes, before the meeting that I thought started five minutes ago, uh, but my boss told me it started at one, but what he meant was he had to be there at one. I arrived, the door was closed, I thought, what? It's 12.55, why, has everybody started already? I opened the door, and it was only my two bosses standing there. And he said, um, the meeting will start at 1.50. Oh, I see. Uh, the registration is at 1.30, and it's 1.05 right now. So I thought, it's a very pleasant day out right now, there's no wind. So I can record outside. I know there's a park right across the street from the city hall in the pleasant town of Tuscaca, where I work. And why not come out here and do a podcast while I'm waiting? Because I have something on my mind. But the thing about me is I quite often have something on my mind. And the only way to get it off my mind is to chat to a phone and tell the world. I'm looking at some uh, pigeons. P is for pigeons. They're pecking away. Is for pecking pigeons in a park. <laughs> in a, I don't know what they're eating off the ground. It's winter. Uh, it's very pleasant out today. It's supposed to be cold today, but I rather like this temperature. Uh, maybe it's hmm, mid 40s. Eh, call it 10 degrees. Feels warmer than that to me, though, especially in the sun. The winter where I live here is very lovely. P is for pleasant winters. Okay, so um, yeah. Let's uh, let's have a listen here to something while I'm thinking about what I'm going to say. You tell me what 1980s song this sounds like. I'm going to stop it right there. What song do you think it is? You have to think to yourself. Now I'm going to play... Once I play, the, you'll hear the keyboard part. You'll know that... I think you might know it if you know 1980s pop music. It's a popular song. I'll play it, I'll play the, play it out a little longer here. Um, this is a... I'll give you a couple clues. A songwriting duo out of Philadelphia. Two men. They sang what they were referred to as... Or what is commonly referred to as Blue-Eyed Soul. And uh, I actually rediscovered this particular song a few years ago when I found the lead singer of this song. I found he was doing like a YouTube series where he would gather younger musicians to his place and they would do covers of his songs and other songs and um, basically he said the idea behind the YouTube series was to share music with younger people and to promote them, which that's what I'm all about. That's the we economy right there, everybody. Because as a result, not only did I learn about some new younger musicians, but then I rediscovered this musician who, when I was a kid, and I liked a few of his songs, one in particular, but uh, this song here that we're going to hear for a little bit a little bit of, I wasn't a huge fan of this one, but when I heard him do it with a popular younger artist, and I heard how cool, like, just how good of a pop song this is, and how funky it is, it's just, it's, it's a groover. And I thought, all right, sometimes you're, you have to reassess things that, you know, when you were younger, you... A lot of the stuff in the 80s I had issues with was because of the way the music was presented to me via MTV and a lot of the 80s fashion I really hated. Like this guy who I'm talking about has really crazy poofy blonde hair that even now when I look back on it, I'm like, man, that, that hair just, it sucks. And uh, a friend the other day shared something with me and what song were we were talking about? It was an 80s band. Oh, it was Journey. 
And he, sh he shared like a meme of something, like a, a gif, a gif, a giffy gif gif, jiffy gif gif, and a pig, and, a, and this big fat spliff. <laughs> anyway, Journey, and uh, I like some of their songs now, like when I hear them, I'm like, yeah, these are classic pop, you know, pop rock songs from the 1980s, but when I see them, I still like, I instantly go, I hate this band, because, yeah, the 80s fashion, man. It got everybody. I mean, really, like most all the musicians that even though I liked in the 70s and stuff, when I, you know, the 80s, their 80s incarnations. God, the 80s were just a shit decade for fashion. If you disagree with me, you got to tell me why, why I'm wrong, and I'll still tell you you're wrong, and then we can agree to disagree and move on. Or we can argue forever and not be friends over something so stupid as a disagreement over fashion in the 1980s. Your choice. All right, um, yeah, let's listen to this song a little more. Here we go. Do you know it yet? I like that. Da, 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 da. That little guitar is so cool. And all the keyboards. I'll shut up, sorry. It's a long build up though. I don't think they ever played this long of a build up on the radio when I was a kid. When I heard this, I was kind of surprised. Alright, that's groovy, right? You just want to get up and kind of do a little strut. Alright? It's a minute build-up. You know it now, right? I'm gonna keep playing it. I'm gonna risk the censors, the lawyers that are gonna come after me for having a podcast for 10 people. He's talking over the music. Good Japanese DJ. Gonna cut it here, man. Here we go. If you don't know it by now, you suck. Here we go. Here it is. No can do. Uh oh. No can do. Can't go for that. Can't go for that. Can't go for that. Can't go for that. All right, that's enough. That song's great. I'm sorry. If you like pop music, that is. I mean, you know, if someone played me a piece of classical music or opera. And classical, I, can, I like some of it, but I realize lately why I don't like classical. I'll finish that thought first. If you play me anything from opera, and so this is a great piece of opera, I'd be like, I still think it sucks. I still hate it. <laughs> um, but I realize lately why I don't like classical music that much, because there's not enough earth in it. Like, lately I've really come down to, I see things, one of the perspectives I see things through is the four elements, air, earth, fire, and water. And I look at, like, music through those elements, and I am a Capricorn, and I'm very earthy in a lot of ways like my 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 chart astrologically speaking is very earthy and fiery um which is why i love air and water so much because they balance me out anyway uh it's very earthy so i love like you know a good bass and i need a drum man in classical music it's too it's too airy it's too airy it's too intellectual it's too airy it's like give me some groove man like it's you know doo, 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 doo. and it's like yeah that's like the melody's all cool but where is the that's terrible <laughs> you get my point mark brownstein i need your help give me a bass line Oh, Brownie's got some, I mean, that guy, the Disco Biscuits, that's what got me into that band. I don't know, the, the whole thing, the whole package is great, but like, Mark Brownstein's bass and Sammy Altman's drums back in the day, that's some earth. 
Um, their new drummer, Alan, is great. I mean, he's just, he's a very well-balanced in his sounds, but I would say Sammy was more earthy. Uh, you can hear that in the night last summer. Sammy sat in with them for the 20th anniversary of Camp Bisco. And uh, when Sammy sat in with them, he did, they did Memphis and do uh, Rapture by Blondie. And that jam that they go into, like before Rapture, like the groove they get into, it's just so earthy and like, Alan's great. He's one of the better drummers around, in my opinion, but he, he doesn't have that earth groove that Sammy had. Uh-oh, looks like the helicopters are going to come and interrupt the podcast. I'm going to get nuked by a helicopter. I am in Japan, after all. I'll say something weird. I'm saying a lot of stuff here. Um, I've had this thought before. Oh, okay, this is a dark thought, folks. The podcast is taking a turn. <laughs> That's how my brain works, though, um, and uh, I'm able to laugh about this stuff. If you can learn to laugh at the stuff your shadow produces, that really will help you a lot. And uh, okay, but I mean, okay, well, I'll start with the dark thought, and then I'll make it. I'll try to make it somewhat funny, or maybe I'll just laugh about how awful it is. So, and I've mentioned this before in conversations with people and in blog posts and stuff. Several years ago, I was watching a John Oliver segment about drones, and in the segment, this was in the Obama years, in the segment there was a kid, 13 year old kid in, uh, I think he was in West Bank or somewhere, Pal- Palestine, was he, in, was he in Palestinian territories or West Bank or Syria, anyway, somewhere in that part of the world. And he was saying that in the last few years he had come to hate the day that I'm sitting under right now, a sunny sky, blue sky. And the reason was the drones strike on those days. When it's cloudy, the drones don't strike. Yeah, just ponder that for a second, how fucked that is. That a 13-year-old kid, in, you know, just going about his life, hates sunny days now because there's a policy by my government, the government that I, well, I don't haven't given them much in taxes in recent years, but still have my passport, you know, still, I'm an American citizen. And that was under Barack Obama when things were normal and good. Got to return to that. Biden. <laughs> anyway. I mean, Trump's doing even more drones than Obama, so let's not let him off the hook. But the point is, is you wonder, oh, well, how do we get rid of terrorism? Well, maybe having policies where you're using drones that just strike shit out of the sky. Like this kid, he's walking down the street, and maybe he never saw one, or but maybe he heard an explosion or saw a fire, you know. But there's the knowledge that maybe he knew someone that has a relative or whatever that got hit by a drone by accident, collateral damage, what can be done. What can be done is you stop fucking hitting people with death from above. <laughs> you know, like, that's what can be done. And the point is, is like, you want to get rid of terrorism? Well, maybe having policies that make people's lives so horrible that they hate you, and then they decide, I want to stop that, and so then they go to war against you. Maybe get rid of those policies. Ever thought about that? We interrupt this podcast to let you know that what happened next was I went on a tangent and I forgot to finish my thought. So what I'm going to tell you is that Dennis Kucinich was on a podcast that you'll hear about, and he was talking about the need for a Department of Peace. And I think it's a damn good idea, but I won't go on about that anymore. All I'm saying is, war, what is it good for? Now, before I get back to the conversation I was having with myself in the park... On a pleasant Friday afternoon. Peace for Pleasant Parks. 
I'm going to play for you a clip that relates back to episode six, the episode about Mayor Pete and kind of what went on last week in the Iowa caucus. And this is the point. This is why all that went down. It's not conspiracy, folks. 100%. This is what happened. Okay, so here is Abby and Robbie Martin from their excellent Media Roots radio podcast. This episode was titled CIA Pete, Iowa Caucostrophe, and Neocons something or other, which I can't read. But here it is. So if this happened in any other country uh, that we didn't like, like Venezuela or Bolivia or any, any country like that, we would be saying that this was some kind of sham election. So... Um, yeah, uh, it's really, really suspicious because Bernie was going into the Iowa caucus so strong and, you know, any hardcore Bernie supporter, uh, who's not an idiot right now is thinking that this seems really suspicious. This is the part. And it's not just because that this is important dictating the election going forward. It's because this sort of eliminated the ability for Bernie to go over the top you know, like, and get all that media attention and be able to do, like, a victory speech live on TV when everybody was glued to their TV. He can't do that now. They're off to, like, New Hampshire, and they're not... That, that moment is gone forever for the entire campaign, for everybody. So that's a really big deal. Also, let's talk about the timing of when this all happened. The caucus was supposed to show us the results on Monday night, but we already knew going forward that Trump's State of the Union was Tuesday and that the impeachment vote was going to be on Wednesday. So three, yep. three giant events happening consecutive days. So if anything went wrong on caucus night, then that moment's gone, baby. Poof, it's gone like a puff of smoke. Meaning that even though, even if the candidate, even if Bernie comes out with the most delegates, he's still not going to get that media pop. Like that's part of this whole process. It's as disgusting as it is. That's the whole part of it. You need that like mainstream media bounce, that pop that you get. You do your victory speech on the night of the caucus. Never, it's gone. That moment is gone. Cannot stress how big of a deal that is. Okay, that's the clip. And if you think that makes no sense, that, oh, how does this conspiracy work? It's easy. The Democrats created an app for this election that they'd never used before. I'm going to link Lee Fang's article from The Intercept, which was all about how this app was developed by people with connections to the Pete Buttigieg and Hillary Clinton folks. And so they create this app and then, oh, for some reason it doesn't work and we'll have the election results for you tomorrow. Okay, it's pretty simple. The media doesn't really have that much to do with that. In fact, they're waiting for the Democrats. So the Democrats know to control the news cycle. We won't have the results. Bernie doesn't get to do his victory speech. By the time we get the results, which they came out, did you notice they came out like on Thursday when we finally got the full results? By then, everybody moved on in New Hampshire, and the whole story was about how big of a mess it was. And amazingly, Pete Buttigieg was the only person who got to benefit from this all. All the candidates suffered, everybody. Every candidate suffered. I'd say Buttigieg and Biden were the only ones who benefited. Biden, because of the fact that if the results had been released that night on time, Everyone would have said, wow, Biden had a really bad night. Okay, let's return to Friday afternoon when I was sitting in a park, not thinking about Mayor Pete. Dennis Kucinich was on uh, Matt Tybee's 
Katie Halperu's podcast, another one I'm going to highly recommend, probably mention it a few times. That podcast is called Useful Idiots. It came out last summer. It's great. There have been a lot of really good pods that have been released in the last year. I just call them pods. It sounds so freaking pretentious. Do you listen to my pod? Pod? <laughs> Podrick Payne of Game of Thrones. Quite the swordsman. <laughs> oh, yeah. Anyway, Podrick Payne, he was awesome. Good character. If you don't know the reference, I'm not going to tell you. He was a swordsman. In more ways than one. Um, yeah. So on this podcast, what was I getting at? Matt Tybee, Kitty Halper, drones. <laughs> oh, my thoughts get the train gets rolling sometimes, folks, and goes right off the rails. I know I've, I I can tell you right now. Like sometimes I listen back to my podcasts, and I'm like, I'll say like, oh, I'm gonna tell you about something. Let me look that up real quick, and then I forget to do it. Forget to do it. Uh, that happened on today's podcast, episode six, the one I released on this Friday, Friday, February. Six, I think it is a six today. Oh no, it's a seventh. The seventh day of February 2020. This is no, we don't need you buying Vinci. It's the downside of waiting for meetings. <laughs> There's no fucking downside to this, dude. I'm sitting out in the park making media, getting paid, getting money. By the way, I got new, I got more money from my blog. I got 31 cents. And I got 39 more now. I'm up to 70 cents. Fucking one week's worth of work, boys. I'm rich. I'm rich in soul. So, yeah, what was I going to talk about? Well, I said postponing meetings, parks, podcasts. Let's talk about parks. Parks are great. I love parks. <laughs> what else can I say about parks besides that? I mean, there should be more parks. We should have park day. If I was president, I would announce a day and probably... Eh, sometime in May, probably early May. Here in Japan, we've got a great week here called Golden Week. May 3rd, 4th, and 5th. May 3rd is my son's birthday. Turns out May 4th is the birthday of two of my good friends and one of my, my first fan of this show, Dan Villar. May 4th. Didn't know that, man. And uh, James McKnight. Aw, oh, James McKnight out of Tucson, Arizona. May 4th. I knew that about James and my brother-in-law, Scott Atacao. Look at that. May 4th. All over the place. And then my son, May 3rd. And that's a great, I mean, the weather here is like freaking, I messed that up, but perfect, perfect, perfect. I was trying to do that thing that Italians do when they, when they eat something delicious. Anyway, it's perfect. And uh, my son was born on May 3rd, the first day of this three-day holiday at like 7 a.m. So all of the relatives from Tokyo could come up and meet him on his first day. And uh, he's got a great birthday, except for one thing. Okay, I'll say first. I say that before I say why his birthday sucks. My birthday sucks. My birthday is on January fourth, and in America, quite often as a kid, that was the first day back to school or the second day back to school, and everybody's bummed because in Washington the weather is really dark and cloudy and gray and rainy and miserable, and we're coming back to school after winter break, and everybody's all miserable, and I'm like, hey man, it's my birthday, everybody. Anybody gonna say happy birthday? And everybody's like. Ugh. But on the, on the bright side, now see, here's the thing. All these things in your life have ups and downs, brights and, uh, the bright side and the dark side. The bright side is my birthday. My half birthday is July 4th, Independence Day. That's right, Independence Day, everybody. Independence Day. And so we'd, I'd go to the big old parties, barbecues, and fireworks as a kid, and I'd be like, man, everybody's celebrating me, man, my half birthday. So that, that was the payoff. Now for my son, I already told you the bright side, being on a holiday in nice weather, basically the same weather we have in Washington on July 4th, 
just perfect, you know? Blue skies like today here, but nice and warm. Um, this is perfect to me though now. I like cooler weather now, so this kind of weather is like ideal. Perfectly comfortable. Sun on me. Feel great. I can enjoy the sun. If this is summer, I wouldn't want to sit here. Not in Japan, but even in Washington. Like, I don't like sitting in the straight sun in the summer. It's too bright. My skin's so fragile, man. I'm Nordic. Okay, but the reason my son's birthday sucks is because, okay, in Japanese, month of May is, they just say go, as in one, two, three, four, five. Go, gatsu. May, fifth month, gatsu is month, so go, gatsu, five month. Go. And then uh, the third day of the month is uh, mika. I think I'm pronouncing that right. My pronunciation ain't that great here, but people understand. So go and then me, go me, go me means garbage, garbage day. He was born on garbage day. So we always joke with him about that. But because he's got such a good day to have a birthday on, he doesn't give a shit. My birthday is uh, January, Ichigatsu, Yoka, Yoka, but actually four, Shi, so Ishi, which is stone, so Ishi no Hi. So my birthday is a stone day. Everybody must get stoned on my birthday. You should do it. Everybody, if I was president, that's guess, that marijuana day, January 4th. <laughs> you see, everybody, I've already decided I will be president someday by making every day of the year a holiday. Yep, every day of the year a holiday. You can work if you want, but if you don't want to, you don't have to. And that will have a reason for you. Okay, that's the easiest way to... Andrew Yang tried it by giving away money. That was pretty good. A good idea, but how about giving away time, baby? That's the next step. Brian Winchell. He'll give you time. No president's ever promised that, you know? More free time. It seems weird, doesn't it? Like, you think if one president would have that on their platform somewhere along the way. We work too hard. We're going to give you a day off. But even, like, Bernie Sanders, who I love, is like, We're going to get you more jobs, more work. I'm doing my uptight Bernie voice, but there's some kids running around. I like kids. That's why I've taught for 15 years. Yesterday I taught the preschool. P is for preschools. Four-year-olds. P is for four. Four. PH. Four. And uh, it was so fun. I love teaching the four-year-olds. So today, I'll talk about my job for a minute. Today I went to my boss and I told him all the things about the job that sucked because I could be honest. Uh, I mean, I'm joking. I'm being a little bit. I did tell him a few things about the contract that ALTs and myself have talked about over the years, but nobody ever wanted to say anything because you don't want to lose your job. But I told him, I'm like, I can be honest with you now because I'm leaving. Uh, one thing I told him was, in our job here in Japan, like they have these rules against people taking side work and, you know, like a part time job or jobs on the side. When I first came here in 20, 2004, everybody had them and they just all the other uh, teachers doing my job said don't worry don't worry about that in the contract just do them and as a matter of fact on my very first day here the board of education or the city hall one of the workers came up to me and said we'd like you to teach this class on wednesday night it's like fifty dollars fifty dollars it's once a month for an hour and a half just conversation it's very easy and i'm like well what about the contract and they said oh no we already talked to the board of education and because it's for the city hall it's okay so I was like, wait a minute, they're going to violate their own rule because it's for them? So that right away I was like, okay, this rule's horseshit. Uh, but everybody told me, don't worry about it, just do side jobs if everybody does it. But nowadays, and I told my, my bosses today, I said, nowadays a lot of the younger people that come for this job come here loaded with college debt and they're afraid to lose their jobs, our, the main, our, our full-time job, so they don't do side jobs, even though they probably should do the side jobs because they need to pay off their debts, right? And yet they don't because they're afraid. And I told him this, and 
I told him, I said, some of these companies that are around town here, these people that have small little private schools are having trouble finding workers because all the ALTs can't do it anymore. And then I talked to him about how it's ridiculous, really, because the reason I was told, I, I looked into this over the years, you know, I've been here 15 years, had a lot of time to talk to people about this. So I asked one of my good friends, co-worker, first teacher I worked with, and now we're still friends. I asked her, like, why do they have that in the contract? She said, well, originally it was about companies didn't want people to come to work tired from doing other side jobs. However, the thing is, we are allowed to volunteer. So I could go teach my Friday night class that I've been doing for 12 years for free. And now it would make me more tired because I'm still doing the same thing. But so basically their objection is not to the tired, it's to the you getting money. And then I realized what it's really about. It's about control. It's about them saying, no, we don't want you to be able to, can you knock him over here, please? Uh, <laughs> we don't want you to, there's a little background noise, everybody, for in a park, we're in a park, public park, P is for public. Can't be telling people to go away, but hopefully they can recognize I'm talking. I'll do a podcast here, go away. Um, really, it's about control. Like if you had other side jobs, if you're working for a company and you're making other money, then you can say, ah, I don't want this job anymore, I quit. So that's what it's really about. And I didn't say that much to him today, but I kind of told I kind of told him like you know about the volunteer thing, and um, and I told him I said I'm still doing these jobs, and I have all these years. I got a family and stuff. So um, okay, so that's the first complaint I had. The second one is about our sick leave. Now, when I first got here, I was a, on the JET program, which is a national program, and still to this day that program exists, and they get 20 days a year of sick leave. And then when I, after five years of that, that's the max, five years I got the direct hire through the city I'm at, and they, at that time, the contract was the same as JET, so 20 days of sick leave. But then about four or five years after that, they quit. They gave, it went from 20 days to zero. Now here's the problem. Okay, so, this kid went right by me. Japanese people have like, I'll say one thing about them, and this is, this is just a, it's a generalization, so not every Japanese person, but 95% of them, they don't have a great sense of like, personal space, private space, because they're such a public, like, their consciousness is so group-oriented that sometimes they'll just get right up in your in your grill when you're doing shit, and it's like, come on, man, I'm doing something right now, like, you know, give me some space. I don't mind, though, it's fine. You guys can still hear me. But, uh, yeah, I'm in a park, and there's kids, and kids don't care. <laughs> That's a boy, by the way. Probably about eight, nine years old. Okay, so I'm getting back to it. So the sick leave. So I told him today, I'm like, you know, here's the problem. So every year at this time of year, our contract runs until April, April to April, one, one year contract. So we have 20 days of days beyond the public holidays, which is a lot, right? But we have to use those if we're sick. Boy, it's really hard to concentrate this kid. All right. So we have to use those if we're sick. And the problem is, every year this is influenza season, flu season, and they have a rule here. Can you shh? Choked a little bit. Um, yeah, I'm getting mad at this kid because he's like just yelling so loud. It's like, fuck. Don't yell so loud, dude. Okay. So every year we have. Oh my god, he's like right behind me. Like, I just said shh, and he looked right at me, and he still does it. See what I'm saying? Uh, okay. Gotta deal with the public. Um, yeah. I've been teaching kids for 15 years and I love them, but sometimes they drive you fucking nuts. Adults too, though. I like kids more than adults in a lot of ways. So the rule is that, you know, if you get sick here with influenza, the flu, they call it influenza, they don't call it the flu. If you get it sick with influenza, you gotta be out, man. You gotta be out three days past being sick. No, no fucking ifs, ands, or buts about it. 
So you're you're healthy, but you got to use your own freaking days off. Well, the problem is for us foreigners who have family back home. If we go back home to visit people, we will be 10 days out of our 20 days are gone, and then we're going to use days here and there throughout the year. So you get down to the end of the year here, where you got three or four days left, and you might you we have at the end of March we have a lot of free time like a week where we don't have classes and a lot of us want to have time for that and we're allowed to carry over 10 days don't you don't need to look at me i'm looking at hey what's up you don't need to look at me just go away go away hey what's up just go away um trying to be like nice to these kids but also like let them know like i'm just you're distracting as fuck like the kid just stops and stares like right in my face <laughs> um I, they might be retarded though i don't think so i don't know i can't tell Hard to, <laughs> it's hard to tell the difference between normal and retarded these days. <laughs> uh, there's a shallow joke for you. <laughs> um, they just seem like normal kids, but I don't know. Anyway, I'm getting near the end of this. Uh, so the problem is, like last year, I didn't know this, and I told my bosses today. I said, last year I went to school and I wasn't feeling good. And like three days into it, I was like, oh, I have influenza. But by then I was starting to feel a little better. And I wasn't going to say anything because they would have made me stay home for three days. And at that time, I didn't know I was going to quit my job. Well, I didn't want to stay home in the middle of February doing nothing. When I have classes to teach, and I'm like, I've already spread this shit around if I have it. And I don't want to use my normal holidays. So I told them, I'm like, the compromise, if I said if I was writing the contract, what I would do is I'd give all direct hires five days. You know? And those would be kind of, in, I would see them myself as like influenza days, you know? Anyway, I told him, I said, I know you can't make these changes. I know you're not going to go back to the desk and say, well, Brian said, let's change it. Like, he has no power, but I just said, I want you to think about these things. And I told him, this is not just me talking. This is like all the direct hire ALTs conversations we've had. And I promised them that I would do this for them over the, over the, once I left. So I did it. And that's how that day went. There's a friend here going by. Doing a podcast. <laughs> These kids that were like walking right at my face and like looking right at me. I'm like, go away, man. Like, <laughs> trying to concentrate here. <laughs> uh, and that's that. I said I was going to talk about fish. Maybe I'm not. Maybe I'll just release this afterwards. I promised my friend Dan I would talk about fish. All right, let's do that for a few minutes. I got three minutes. So I got my tickets today for the Gorge, uh, the lottery, and so did he. So we're going to fish July 17th, 18th, 19th. Three nights at the Gorge. Cannot fucking wait. P is for fucking wait. And, uh, well, Fish is awesome. They're the greatest American rock band of all time. I will stand by that. Do you know any other band who has ever played 13 shows without repeating this song? I don't think you do. At Madison Square Garden? No, you don't. No, you don't. And do you know this? They had the... I haven't listened to the podcast yet, officially, about the Big Cypress in 2000. They did, the, for the Millennium Concert, they did the largest New Year's concert, I believe they said, in the world. For 1999 to 2000, like the most people were there. At least I know definitely in America, in the Indian Reservation, in the Everglades, in Florida, they're a big deal, folks. Like in American culturally, like people talk about the Grateful Dead and stuff, but like, and the dead are like, you know, they're the fishes, kind of like they're like their parents. But fish, in many ways, has gone like a good kid. They've learned from the dead and gone past the dead. Their career's longer, and uh, that's sad because you know we lost Jerry. At the young old age of 54, mid-50s, I'm not sure the exact. I feel like he was born the same year as my dad, but I, he might be a little earlier. Anyway, he might have been 41. Anyway, he was born around that. My dad's 44. My dad is not 44 anymore because I'm 47. That would be weird. I had I made a baby when I was negative <laughs> three. 
And uh, yeah, fish is great. Let's see, my favorite fish song is Reba. And the last time I saw him at the Gorge, they played a great version of that. And I remember turning around, this is on the third night, and the people that were there on night three last time were all the real fans. Like night two, I mean seriously, like night two was like, that's such a weird night, man. There's so much, there were so many like rich people there from like, I call them the Burning Man rich crowd, the people that fly around like from, there was a, a family in front of me, I swear to God, I think they were from France. Because I heard them talking in French and they all looked really French and they were so rich looking. They were a nice family, I mean, nice looking kids, but they looked really wealthy. And they're looking around, there was just a lot of like wealthy people and I kept like dancing through their groups because I was, well, I was in my own little space that night, and uh, but I had a blast. And I remember there was this one girl. I was like doing my little dance thing, and she she was like drunk, and she was like a, you know a middle-aged chick. I honestly didn't find her at all attractive, but I was just like playing with everybody. And she wanted to like she started like she grabbed my hand, we started doing this dance, and then like she got really clingy like pretty quick. <laughs> and I did this little twirl, and I swung away, and I just gave her a smile like bye bye. <laughs> And I could see that she was let down. She wanted to dance a little longer, but she was drunk and I was on a different wavelength and uh, just wasn't into her energy that much. So I gave her 30 seconds of my time. It was nice, wasn't it? I try to be free like that. Try to be nice. Fish. And that night, yeah, my friend Dan and I, uh, we didn't get in. We, Dan was such a sweetheart because I know Dan probably hates me right now because I just called him a sweetheart. Ha <laughs> ha! Gotcha, buddy. Uh, sweetheart, because that night he offered to carry... Oh, no, wait, was it... How did that work? I don't think he carried any of my stuff. I feel like there was... A, I think I had some stuff that maybe I put in his backpack, but it wasn't that much, but I, I was like, I just want to... The night before, I brought in the gay blue backpack, which I talked about, I think, in the last podcast, in the episode four. The gay blue backpack, which is too big to bring in. And I was like, that was... A, I'd had this freaking download on the airplane, like travel light travel light travel light and yet I didn't that first night so the night two I was like I'm just gonna go over there with my ticket my wallet and that's it it's not gonna be that cold and I'm gonna have a good time and I feel like I put something in Dan's bag because he's like oh I can carry this in for you and I'm like okay but he didn't need to do that you know, by doing that I got to go through the fast line and we got separated anyway me and him and our friend John and uh Dan was kind of I was kind of looking back at him and like it was just by the way the crowd was working and Dan was kind of like just tell me go 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 and uh, so I did, and uh, so I was, I didn't see Dan that whole show, I didn't see Dan until like I got back to the campground after the show, but the thing about me and Dan is like we're really tight, but we also both love our freedom, so it's like he knows that we both know we can both have a great time without each other's company. Alright, I should go up, it's time, it's time, time for the meeting. That's enough, I love fish, can't wait, can't wait to see Dan. That's it, thanks for listening, adios. Okay, that's it for this week's episode. Kind of an odd one, I will admit. Uh, I had a little trouble here at the end of the putting this together, some recording issues, and I just kind of ran out of steam. Uh, I still think it's a pretty good episode. Uh, maybe not quite as focused as some of them, but you never know what you're going to get on the BNP realm. Although you do know from the title that you're going to get coming up next the chapters 13 and 14 from my novel, The Teacher and the Tree Man. So please uh, continue to listen to that. If you haven't been already, you can go back to the start. It is a book, so probably want to pick up from chapters one. And if you've been listening, thanks. And even if you're not, thanks for listening to the show for so far. Okay, we'll see you in a few days. Thanks a lot. Bye-bye.
Chapter 13, Public Setbacks, Private Hopes. Class was about to start, but no one was in the mood to leave the TV room. Another airliner, apparently also hijacked, had crashed into a field in Pennsylvania. Serving was the news that the World Trade Center South Tower had collapsed, followed about half an hour later by the collapse of the North Tower. The destruction was on an epic scale, and the normally sensationalistic media had no words large enough to describe what they were witnessing. Despite the intensity of the morning, or perhaps because of it, Lucas felt rather detached, and noticed his reaction was quite different from the shocked state of most of the staff. They were trying to discuss the implications, speculating about who was behind it, about where and when the next attack would happen, and about whether or not to cancel school for the day. Finally, Weinberg decided that it was best to go ahead with school, because in their small corner of the world there was no reason to think they would be attacked. I just don't know if I can handle teaching this morning, Wendy said, and Lucas noticed that her makeup was a total mess now. She had been gone for 15 minutes, and Lucas figured she'd been crying somewhere. Why was she taking this so hard? This is unbelievable, Rialto said. Who the fuck would do something like this to us? What did we do? The question set off several answers in Lucas's mind, but he was well aware of the dangers of speaking too openly about his politics in the workplace. Still, he was feeling confident and empowered due to the intersection decision, so he threw caution to the wind and said, What did we do? Are you kidding? The other conversation stopped. No, I'm not kidding, Rialto said. Are you trying to say we deserve this? Of course not, Lucas said, knowing he should walk carefully over these eggshells but struggling due to a sudden rise in overwhelming emotions. Nobody deserves this. I'm just as shocked as the rest of you. I'm just not that surprised. How can you say that? Wendy demanded. How can this seem expected? Lucas was about to delve into a diatribe about American foreign policy since World War II. In the freedom for so-called free markets, the American military machine had dipped its feet into the internal affairs of just about every country on the planet. When Danielson said... I don't think that's what Paul is saying. Is it, Paul? No, no, Lucas said. I'm sorry. I'm not sure what I'm saying. I'm emotional, just like all of you. All I meant is that if you live in a country that has the world's largest military, and that military has been involved in various conflicts around the world, it's pretty obvious that some country or terrorist group is going to strike back at some time, right? No one said anything. Lucas wondered what he'd said wrong. He knew his fellow teachers were generally liberals like himself, and that they'd probably been exposed to some of the same information about U.S. foreign policy he'd been exposed to in college. Paul, perhaps this isn't the best time to be discussing our wrongdoings, Danielson said, putting a comforting hand on Lucas's shoulder. And when is, Lucas said. Are we going to just act like this attack occurred in a vacuum and that we've done nothing that would cause people out there to hate us? Just strike back without thinking about why we were struck? I can't believe what I'm hearing, Rialto said. Thousands of people are probably dead. Who knows what's going to happen next? And you want to delve into a discussion about the wrongs of U.S. foreign policy as though somehow we brought this upon ourselves? Whatever, Willie, Lucas said. All I'm saying is that if humanity is ever to learn from such horrible acts, we need to examine why these things happen before we react. You can't know the why unless you are willing to look at all perspectives and viewpoints, including ones that may cast one's actions in a critical light. Go ahead and do that from your ivory tower, Rialto said. In the meantime, 
I just hope President Bush is mobilizing a retaliation plan so we get whoever did this to us. Lucas wanted to say something more, but Danielson interceded, saying, It's time for class, everybody. I think it's best if we try to go about our business like it's a normal day. We have to remember that even though we are upset, we are adults, so we have acquired defenses against this sort of thing. Our kids are more open and thus more susceptible to the negativity of this deal. Lucas wanted to argue with that, too, saying that he thought this would be a good day to hold a school-wide assembly and let everybody just rant out whatever they were feeling. Instead, he decided that because he respected Danielson so much, it was better to follow his advice. After all, Lucas was well aware that his emotions were getting the better of him, and he'd already said things that had cast him in a bad light with his co-workers. But he wasn't sure how much he cared. He felt that part of the reason this attack had happened was because Americans were so busy ignoring what their government was doing around the world in their name. Throughout the 1990s, horrible things were being done by U.S. military and economic policies, yet the news of the day had focused on asinine, unimportant topics like the O.J. Simpson murder trial or whether or not the president had received a blowjob from an intern. This shallow, head-in-the-sand quality of American journalism had been enough to make Lucas give up the field and go into teaching where he hoped he could meld young minds into more thoughtful adults than those who were currently running the country and the media. With those thoughts dancing through his mind, Lucas went to his class and vowed to get through the day without stirring up any more trouble. The rest of the day did turn out to be trouble-free because he spent it in his classroom with the idea that he could tune out the horrible news and keep away from the teachers who might want to talk about it. When school finally finished, he went to the staff room and remembered that he'd wanted to call the city councilman who'd called that morning. You to help me with one other thing, Lucas, feeling very confident now that the intersection was going to be fixed, said to city councilman Robert Gordon Phillips. It's not a big favor. I just want to know if you can do anything to stop this new mall they're talking about. Well, Phillips said, I'm afraid it's beyond my realm of influence. Wait, Lucas said. I thought you were the man who could make things happen. I can. So? That mall is outside city limits, so we have no control over it. It's up to the county, Phillips said. The county? Yeah, Phillips said. Though the county council gave it the go-ahead a while back. Can't say I blame him. That mall is going to bring in a lot of revenue into this area. Wait, Lucas said. Are you saying you support this mall? Of course. Why wouldn't I, Phillips said. As I said, it will be an economic boon to... Enough already, Lucas said. You've lost my support. He hung up violently. How goddamn frustrating. I can't believe that guy trying to say the money was worth it. Worth what? How can he even quantify the value of a forest, a creek, a canyon? Doesn't he ever go out to places like Last Rush? Considering his attitude, the answer was probably not. Lucas left the phone room and got ready to make the trek home. As he was gathering his papers in his classroom, he looked at the desk where Chris Lee normally sat. Today, for the first time that year, He'd been absent. Lucas missed Lee's presence in his class. He had a way of keeping things loose, yet on topic, and had asked around about his whereabouts. Sally Jacobson, one of Lee's better friends, Chris's girlfriend, other students sometimes called her, had told Lucas that Lee had laryngitis, which Lucas found questionable. Was laryngitis really that capable of spreading? Or just a convenient excuse? And all of a sudden, it dawned on Lucas. Tomorrow morning, when he called in sick, he knew exactly what he would say. 
Lucas rasped. Laryngitis. Drink lots of water and get some rest, Weinberg said. This before it turns into a goddamn epidemic, so don't even think about coming back if you're still contagious. How do I know when that is? How the hell should I know? I'm a principal, not a doctor. Right, Lucas said, doing his best to keep the rasp in his voice so the act wouldn't fall apart right at the end. The principal said goodbye rather abruptly, which was fine by Lucas, because he was eager to get on with breakfast so he could be ready when Larry arrived at 7 a.m. Terry was gone already and had taken Scarlet with her, so Lucas was alone with his thoughts. Mostly, he was worried about whether he should tell Sylvanus about the plans for the outlet mall. The only news he had to reveal to Sylvanus, but was the morning of their grand experiment really the best time to do it? In college, Lucas had read many of the psychedelic literature classics. Leary's books, the works of Carlos Castaneda and Terence McKenna, Ram Dass's Be Here Now, Aldous Huxley's The Doors of Perception, and in all of them, one of the most common themes stressed was the Voyager's mindset and setting. Lucas knew already that Sylvanus's setting was perfect. It was hard to beat the great outdoors for a mushroom journey, especially somewhere as serene as the forest. It was the mindset that was more concerning. For one, Sylvanus was a first-time tripper, so his reaction was unpredictable. Yet more than that, the tree man had likely never heard about what a psychedelic trip entailed. In some ways, Lucas felt this was a good thing, because in America 2001, the majority of information people had about taking psychedelics was tinged with fear. A lot of it was about how one could lose one's mind, sometimes permanently. And the worst thing you could tell someone before tripping for the first time was something like that, because it could become a self-fulfilling prophecy. Before the 1960s LSD explosion, the information in the mainstream about psychedelics was glowingly positive, with people like actor Cary Grant claiming LSD had given him a new lease on life and his spirituality. So Lucas decided he'd tell Sylvanus that the experience was going to change his consciousness in a positive way, and that if things got frightening, to trust himself, take some deep breaths, and remember that it would pass. Lucas knew he was rolling the dice here, but he had to gamble, especially now that the forest was in danger of being destroyed. Despite these concerns, Lucas had confidence that Sylvanus was going to pass the mushroom test with flying colors. Many of the more serious freakouts and problems that result from the use of psychedelic drugs are in people who are mentally unstable. Sylvanus seemed like a strong personality with a good head on his, um, tree? The other problems that invariably came from psychedelic drug use were people taking too much or mixing them with other chemicals. Lucas wasn't going to give the tree man too many mushrooms, maybe two grams worth, because of his fears about how the man would react. And he'd only be giving him mushrooms, nothing more. In the end, Lucas knew that even if Sylvanus wasn't real warm on the idea of eating gross-tasting mushrooms, he'd do it for two reasons. First, he seemed to trust Lucas, but more importantly, he was desperate. If all worked according to plan, the mushrooms would help Sylvanus rediscover unused parts of his body, just as he and Larry had felt that night in college. To start working at breaking out of the tree. As Lucas began to prepare breakfast, he felt good about this decision and tried to put the issue to rest in his rattling mind. Yet his mind instantly regurgitated the original question to him. 
Should he tell Sylvanus about the mall or not? He wrestled with this large question as he whistled his own tune and scrambled up some eggs. When he was done scrambling them into a yellow perfection, he made his decision. Tell him later. Let the experiment go on as planned, and hopefully it would actually work and somehow Sylvanus would be freed from the tree. Then, whether or not the forest was chopped down wouldn't be a life-threatening situation for Sylvanus. Lucas smiled at the genius of his decision, read over the morning newspaper, and ate his eggs as he waited for Larry to arrive. The front section was almost completely devoted to the horrors of the terrorist attacks. Lucas started to read the main article, but found himself distracted by the upcoming day and didn't really learn much. He did notice that the article gave no historical context about how, in the 1980s, the CIA had been funding and training the very terrorists who were suspected of carrying out the attacks. He didn't expect it, but he was disappointed nonetheless. It worried him. The way he figured it, the less the mainstream media gave historical context to the attacks, including how they were considered retaliation by the attackers, the more outraged the American people were going to be, asking the question that was already being repeated like a mantra. Why did this happen to us? If key aspects of the answer to that question were not reported, the conclusions the American people were going to have were going to be incomplete and, at worst, catastrophic. He'd already heard the president say in a speech from the Oval Office last night that the terrorists targeted the U.S. because it was the brightest beacon for freedom and opportunity in the world. Lucas was if the American people bought into this explanation, they were going to demand revenge that was only going to cause the fighting to intensify. Lucas had always had trouble understanding why people didn't realize that when you were fighting with someone, or some country, if you keep fighting, the other party is likely going to continue fighting back. If you truly want an end to the conflict, you always have a choice to quit the fighting and attempt to resolve it in some other way that doesn't involve violence. The hard part, of course, was once fights or wars began, their emotional nature made it difficult for either side to stop. And that's not even considering the strange psychology that suggested to stop fighting is to be a coward. There were no other stories in the rest of the newspaper that demanded his attention. Why would he care about the financial plight of the Tacoma women's soccer team? He didn't even know there was a team, and then realized that was why they were in a financial plight. Whatever. He also didn't see the reason he needed to know about plucking unseemly hairs out of various orifices. After all, he didn't have any of those hairs. Yet. In his living room, hooted at the world seven times. There was no knock on his door, no Larry. 701 passed, and so did 702. At 710, Lucas started to be concerned, and at 720, he was downright pissed. Why couldn't Larry ever be on time? Lucas waited, nervously glancing through the classifieds, and at 7.30 he could have sworn the doorbell rang, but a trick of his imagination. Son of a bitch, he thought, and decided to forget about the likelihood of the often flaky Larry Sherry arriving so early in the morning. After all, he'd always been a late sleeper. Plus, Lucas suddenly realized, he'd made the comment about being here when he was pretty drunk, thus had likely forgotten he'd made it. So he gathered up his gear, a thermos full of hot coffee with a screw-on lid that turned into a cup, a blanket, a notebook, a book of Wallace Stegner essays, and the mushrooms, and threw them into his backpack. 
Then he grabbed a fold-out camping chair and tucked it under his arm. Normally dressed, a green wool sweater, fuzzy gray cap, tan worn corduroy pants, and hiking boots. Yet as he stepped outside, a sudden thought froze him in his tracks. What happens if he gets out of the tree? What then? Shit, why did I have to think of that now? Okay, what to do? Well, hell, I don't know. I'm just going to have to improvise. Go on faith. Assume that if, and it's a big if, he does break out, something will come to me then. Okay, that's it. God, this is crazy. Chapter 14, The Escape Hatch When Lucas reached the grove, Sylvanus was still in knot, most likely in a deep sleep. Remembering that he had rudely woken him the other morning, Lucas decided to wait for Sylvanus to wake up. He unfolded his camping chair and sat down. He was content to wait. It was rare that he was in the forest this early, and as he settled in, relaxing to a near sleep, its quiet and chill suddenly took on a stark and strangely eerie feeling. Usually, the towering trees protected him. This morning, they felt like a suffocating blanket. And the silence! How sacred it often was, but how sinister now! as though its silky fingers could slink into every pore of Lucas's body and squeeze, squeeze, squeeze. A truck grunted from the highway two miles away, and it rumbled through Lucas's disturbed mind like a boisterous burp. Normally, the sound would have sent Lucas into a frenzy of profanities, but here it served as a compassionate slap in his face, awakening him out of his funk and back into his normal, grand appreciation for the forest. It was alive. Slumbering true, but alive, and somehow, maybe because it lacked self-consciousness, it felt totally pure. Lucas sucked in this realization with a satisfied breath and smiled. A small sliver of sunlight caressed a log across the grove. Becker searched a snag for breakfast. Thuck, thuck, thuck. Noticed about halfway up a snag, a section of bark had been shaved off in short vertical stripes. What had happened here? A flying beaver, perhaps? Yes, the forest was magically alive, and as the sun began to light up the morning sky and give the forest a stunning golden hue, Lucas gratefully took it in, sipping on his coffee, and every once in a while checking on Sylvanus. A long horn, almost like a foghorn, sounded from down the highway and Lucas jumped. What was that? He realized it was probably a horn signaling the men to start work down at the Newson Rock Quarry. Work, Lucas thought and smiled. Well, he felt a bit guilty about leaving his kids with the substitute when he wasn't sick, the guilt was certainly not overwhelming. Nothing a sip of warm coffee couldn't handle. Just then, Lucas had a brainstorm. Maybe he'd eat a mushroom stem, just to lighten up the day. Hell, if all he was going to do was sit in the woods watching a man's head in the tree all day... He couldn't see why not. He reached for the bag of mushrooms in the backpack. Good morning, Paul, Sylvanus said. Lucas jumped and caught Sylvanus looking down at him with a bemused smirk on his face. Something on your mind? The man in the tree asked. No, uh, nothing, no, Lucas said, discarding his plan. For now. So, you ready to see if we can get you out of this godforsaken tree? Sylvanus flinched. It's not a bad tree, Paul. I just want to be free, that's all. I didn't mean anything by it, Lucas said and scratched the back of his neck. Let me tell you the plan. It's not... Paul, Sylvanus said. Slow down. There's something I want to ask you. What is it? 
What happens to me if I get out? Lucas stopped scratching his neck and raised his head to look at Sylvanus. What could he say? He had no idea. He supposed he could find a place for him to stay for a few days. Hell, even a hotel would do. But then what? How was he to explain to Sylvanus that in the town of Lincolnton, in the state of Washington, in the country called America, on the planet Earth in the year 2001, people didn't commonly materialize out of a tree? It was unprecedented, and Lucas had no more of an answer now than he'd had earlier that morning. So he fidgeted and said, Don't worry, I'll take care of you. Sylvanus's black eyes seemed to pierce Lucas's soul, and for a moment Lucas thought Sylvanus was seen through his casual dismissal. But he smiled, let out a large breath of frosty air, and said, Okay then, how are we going to do this? I'll show you, Lucas said, bending to dig the mushrooms out of the backpack. He grabbed them, but before pulling them out, he said, Now you have to keep an open mind about this, Sylvanus, okay? Okay the tree man said. Lucas pulled out the bag and said, These little buttes are going to be your ticket out of that tree. Sylvanus looked at Lucas, a blank expression on his face, and said, What are they? Cabin cubinces, Lucas said, or in layman's terms, magic mushrooms. Magic mushrooms? Sylvanus laughed. What good will those do me, besides some breakfast? Oh no, Lucas said and laughed. For eating. They taste like shit, literally. So why am I going to eat them? Medicine, Lucas said. Medicine? That's what I said. You didn't leave me many options since I can't chop you down. Sylvanus laughed. Oh, I'm sure there were other options. You just picked this one. Look, I don't even have to help, Lucas said. He wanted to stuff the mushrooms back in the backpack and leave, but Sylvanus said, You're right. I'm sorry. I just don't understand how they are going to work. Well, Lucas said, they are magic. You do believe in magic, don't you? Sylvanus sighed. I guess I'm going to have to. An hour later, and Sylvanus wasn't so sure he could no longer believe in magic. In fact, he wasn't so sure what, if anything, he could believe in. Fower, with him practically vomiting out the vile things, it tasted like moldy cardboard and manure. He had wanted to spit them out at Lucas, but the man kept yelling words of encouragement up at him from his perch on his lawn chair, where he was handing them over to Sylvanus one by one. So Sylvanus chewed and swallowed the awful-tasting monstrosities, and by the time he was done, ten minutes had elapsed. For the next twenty minutes or so, he and Lucas had talked about Terry, and Lucas had told Sylvanus that he'd told her Sylvanus wasn't real. Sylvanus wasn't so sure that this was the right thing to do, he had to acknowledge he really had no clue how people outside the forest were supposed to relate to each other. Then, Sylvanus had felt his stomach attempt to climb up his throat, and he instantly had wondered if Lucas had poisoned him, a mercy kill. His stomach cast a slight taste of mushroom bile into the back of his throat. He so badly wanted to puke, but just then he felt his whole inner body go dead cold. His body! From his toes to the top of his skull, a chill had awakened his inner body with a start. It was still there. And just as quickly as the chill came, it left and was replaced with a flash that would have caused his face to turn red had he not had the dark bark of a tree for skin. The warmth tingled through his skin and he relaxed, enjoying this feeling, just knowing that he still had a body that was not this tree. 
He gave it a wiggle. Nothing really happened. He tried again. Still nothing. Start slow, he heard a voice from somewhere inside of him say. Okay, he thought, wiggling his toe. There. It wasn't much, but he'd felt it moving, though it seemed like a 200-ton weight was holding it down. He wanted to tell Lucas, but Lucas had disappeared, perhaps taking a bathroom break. Sylvanus smiled and closed his eyes. Oh my, what a scene! He was in a field surrounded by sparkling green and gold corn stalks, stretching toward a deep, brilliant blue sky. The sky so full that he felt he could drink it down, and it would fill his soul with the purest water imaginable. The stalks stirred in the breeze, singing softly, and the breeze kissed his face, which for some reason felt like it was covered in several days of stubble. The earth below him smelled like the forest often smelled after a rain, fresh and alive. The field was magic. Yet where was this vision coming from? It was so clear. There was simply no way it could have been invented by his imagination. It had to be coming from somewhere. You're past, he heard the voice say again. Just then, he heard something panting, running quickly toward him. <laughs> and he felt scared as though somehow the vision was so intense that he could be harmed in that magic field. After all, the breeze had caused him pleasure, so why rule out pain? Out of the corner of his eye, he saw a shimmering golden form leaping toward him, hurtling through the air right at his face, and he turned just in time to catch a golden retriever. The dog's momentum knocked him to the ground, and in slow motion its tongue began to lick Sylvanus's face, and Sylvanus laughed into the warm breeze as he rolled with Rex. How did I know its name? There you are! A frail red-headed girl in overalls appeared out of the stalks, and tears began to roll down Sylvanus's face. Doris! he yelled and reached out to hug her, but then he blinked. God damn it, I blinked! And momentarily saw a golden green forest pulsating with more light than he thought possible. Sighed as quickly as he could to feel Doris's warmth. But he was alone standing on hard, shining linoleum under an impressive skylight, and a fountain flowed in front of him. Water cascaded over a miniature waterfall, tumbling into a pool with a sparkling golden floor. The way the water fell entranced him, always moving, fluid, never-ending, fascinating. But there was something more, something about this spot he stood on, something not right, no matter how intoxicating the fountain was. He turned to speak to a young mother who was watching her acute son toss a coin into the fountain, but his voice stuck. The words would not form. It was as if his lips had been glued to the top of his mouth. He tried to speak. Nothing. Damn it! Nothing. Sylvanus! Sylvanus! Lucas's voice shattered the image, and he opened his eyes. The forest was glowing, as though lit up by its usually slumbering inner spirit. It was truly alive. If others could see it as he was seeing it, that fact could not be debated. It seemed to pulsate as though breathing, endlessly, just like the water cascading down the fountain. He wanted to clap his hands in appreciation, and as he thought this, he could have sworn he felt his arm budge, just the slightest bit. Are you okay? Lucas asked him from what sounded like down a long tunnel, but was really right below him. Yes, Sylvanus heard himself say. But again, his voice sounded far away. Yes, I'm more than okay. 
I can feel my body. Later, after Sylvanus had kept his eyes open, just appreciating the natural beauty of the forest, how green it was, he grew tired and closed his eyes, and found himself in the forest. Lucas, however, was not there. Yet he was not alone, or was he? He didn't see anybody or any animals, but something or some things were there. He sensed them. Who or what are you? Across his vision, too fast for him to really see it, something like a ghost flew by and then seemed to settle in the tree across from him. Can you speak? Something like leaves blew in the wind, and then more spirits whooshed through the grove before settling into the trees that surrounded him. Suddenly he remembered. He'd met them before in his dreams. Then he heard a raspy sound. Leaves crunching under a foot turned itself into a voice in his head. We can speak, though it's not really speaking, is it? He didn't know how to answer, so he didn't. We are not physical, at least in the way you think of the word the voice said in his head. Then how are you speaking to me now? It's easier for you to hear us when you meet us halfway between our worlds, the voice said. Is that what we are doing? Yes. Sylvanus didn't entirely understand, not at first. Then he had it, the mushrooms. Just as they seemed to offer him a new way to perceive the forest, they also seemed to give him the ability to perceive these creatures, whatever they were. Are you spirits? Yes, something like that, the voice said. We have been called many things. Fairies, sprites, spirits, ghosts. But what we are is not as important as what we do. And that is? We are guardians, the voice said. Protectors of the forest. But if people can't regularly see or hear you, do that. No answer. Instead, the wind picked up, the trees shook, and pine needles began to rain down from the treetops. Sylvanus! Sylvanus! came Lucas's voice. The tree man opened his eyes and saw his friend panicking, trying to find cover under his lawn chair, but having no luck as pine needles began to cover his crouching body. He shielded his head with his arms, and then it stopped. Lucas slowly peered up from his arms. What the heck was that? Sylvanus never answered Lucas's question because he couldn't immediately find the words. It rendered him speechless. Later, after Lucas had left, though, he found an answer. It was a warning. The rest of the day was uneventful with Lucas occasionally reading his book, but mostly just savoring the quiet of the forest. It was such a drastic difference from the classroom environment. Much as he loved his kids, sometimes he would have given up a week's pay just for them to be silent. Silence was an increasingly rare commodity in today's noise-polluted society. How often do we get the chance just to listen to nothing? Sylvanus had been unusually quiet even when he came gliding back into a regular consciousness. He'd told Lucas that he wasn't sure what to make of the experience, except that feeling his body had given him hope. Next time, they would use a larger dose. Sylvanus had made this decision with little hesitation. Lucas could tell he was getting desperate to get out of the tree. 
rather than talk to Lucas about his thoughts, Sylvanus had told Lucas he needed some time alone to think. That was fine by Lucas, who wanted to get going so he could beat Terry home. If he didn't, she would question why he had a lawn chair, a thermos, and a backpack full of stuff if he'd only been out in the woods for an hour after school. He didn't want to have to lie to her about his day, so he happily left Sylvanus to his thinking. Out of the canyon, feeling pretty darn good about the day's events. Even if the forest was lost in court, the mushrooms had given him hope. Fighting it, but he knew he could lose the forest. That was horrible to think about, so he focused his thoughts on saving Sylvanus. Yet there were other reasons for his sudden elation. The intersection was going to be fixed. Yet told Terry, and he knew she'd reward him in some carnal fashion for his action. Of course, he was also pleased that he and Terry had made up even if it was under false pretenses. He didn't like to lie to her, but the longer he was married, the more he learned to pick his battles wisely, and the more he felt that white lies here and there served like a sort of glue, binding the marriage together. Honesty was essential, but white lies were necessary too, weren't they? And then there was Rialto. Lucas never thought he'd think this, but Rialto actually had a few surprises in him. True, he grew up a surfer, so it's not that strange that he cared about the environment. He told Lucas about surfing under the sun on warm summer days, shooting tubes of tumbling water with reckless abandon, and the killer thrill of coming out standing on the other side. There will never be days like those again, Rialto had told Lucas. Not for me. He clearly loved the beach, but the forest? Why? Lucas didn't trust him. Something had to be up his sleeve. It was Rialto, after all. Lucas thought about these things as he showered and he reflected about the utter strangeness of his life. Was it truly like this for everyone? Well, yes and no. Reasoned, most people have crazy people in their lives because most people are crazy. But not so crazy that they wind up meeting a man stuck in the side of a tree. In a strange way, this fact comforted him. This was a story that was truly unique. He didn't expect anyone else to be in this predicament. Sylvanus had unwittingly given Lucas's life a reason, a way to make it stand out from the pack. Here, with Sylvanus, he was actually making a difference, and it was a difference no one else had ever made. He may not be the first person to save some trees, but he sure as hell was going to be the first person to save a man who was stuck in a tree. Hell. This might even be his ticket to glory, his pre-assigned 15 minutes of fame, those minutes granted to all modern American citizens, or so the myth goes. He could see the Tacoma Post headline now, School Teacher Saves Tree and Friend, and a photo of him standing next to a freed Sylvanus. The Tacoma Post? No way, this story was so much bigger than that. It was huge, and likely to bring him fame and a renewed hold on life. How little did he know.